Season two, episode eight of Stats Don't Matter. European soccer drama llama. We got an ode to Alex Smith, and we're going to finish out with a change of pace. In our cups this week, it's another IPA twofer. Mm. <laughs> Don't say I'm not influencing you, Tim. I, I know I am. <laughs> you you got the uh, you got the stout thing for me going a little bit. I'm not really going into a Midsummer's Night Dram or Whiskey Land, but I, I'm happy that you you make frequent yeah. or infrequent trips to uh, IPA Phil. Very happy about it. Uh, the IPAs this week: Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, in North Haven, Connecticut. Find stats no matter wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on social media on Twitter at Stats Podcast and on Instagram at Stats Don't Matter. Let's crack these beers. Go. Let's go. Okay. So I was talking, I think I referenced this in the last episode, but just take a look at this this can. There's a lot of like super pastel colors in Charleston, South Carolina. I don't I don't know if that's just the thing, right? You got Rainbow Row there with all the pink and yellow and green and orange houses all everyone in the streets wearing like crazy pastel colors beer cans same way love it this is a galaxy in wakadu india pale ale by westbrook brewing talked about them in the last episode and if you'll just take a look at this as this pours pretty much looks like minute made and i don't hate it i don't hate it one <laughs> bit look at that this thing is so opaque um and, you know, to be honest, I don't think it's possible for us to do, you know, a shower pod. But again, on the side of the can, IPA, shower tested and approved. Are all their IPA shower tested and approved? Where was this job? Why was it not available? Why did I not know about this? I do so, know brewers that do little uh, do little nods like that. Blackhawk Brewing in Oxford, Connecticut. Uh, shout out Blackhawk. That's where I spent some of my days. Uh, put a little, and I think I may have mentioned it before, but on the side of every single can, uh, there's a little target for shotgunning a beer, like the perfect placement on the side of every one of these cans. It's usually right around on the back side of the label in like the lower third, lower quarter of the can. There, for I was today years old when, when, when I knew that. I, how many Blackhawk beers have I drank and not done that with? I mean, you could do that with Leave a Mark, you know what I mean? That's like 10%. It's still there. I still have the mark on there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I've seen people might, do it. <laughs> we, we might need to do something about that. That's fantastic. Okay. 14 sips. Everyone knows the rules. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and for the record, I would not advise anybody uh, shotgunning a leaves mark. Uh, I talked about that uh, early on in last in last season. Uh, it's like a 10 to 12% uh, stout that they put out. That is one of my favorite stouts uh, currently available on the market. Uh, but it only comes out once a year. So one, you'd be chugging actual gold, but um, also that would, that would get you feeling pretty, uh, pretty crazy pretty quickly. Okay. Back to this. Off the nose. Pineapple notes and not like pineapple juice. We're talking like ripe pineapple. You get a little bit of the rind there. I get some citrus notes too. A heavy, heavy body. Like this, this one at for seven percent. I, I feel like the one I had last episode, you could drink that one a lot quicker. This one, you could not. If you try to chug this, you're gonna boot. That's gonna happen. Like this is just <laughs> this is this is a very very full bodied uh, IPA, and and I, I love it. This this is great. Um, that sounds like the voice of a rookie. Okay, do we need to have like a chugging like off contest like with hazies like? 
That's not the way this works. And by the way, I'm a terrible chugger, so like, you yeah, would win like, every time. I was like, uh, I mean, I, you know, not to put my bro hat on for a second, but I'll throw, I'll throw down one. Not this up, maybe maybe another one. Maybe See, another I, I've one. learned though that like you know why I don't have the strength to chug anymore. Not that I ever really did, but I I, I got by uh, when it when when the moment called for it or the fight or flight response called for it. Um, <laughs> I I just take big ass gulps, so like I can get through a beer and probably like you know. I'm not trying to brag, but like six or seven sips and everyone else is like, you know, halfway through. And then they're like, oh, are we getting another beer? I'm like, I don't know. Are you? I mean, I'm going to order another beer, but like, <laughs> so I make up for it. But anyway, great beer. Um, definitely going to give this a four, three. It's called Rinse and Repeat. Um, the hops, Galaxy and Wakatu. Very, very good. Very, very good. I, I don't think I've even heard of Wakatu hops until today. and. Uh, I think I need to find them if this is the flavor profile they're going to get. Cause I, I think this is really good. Again, it's super opaque. This might be one of those things that like on a beach day, I might like have to start the day and then coast mm -hmm. with loggers on the way out. I don't think I could have too many of these without getting hit by the pallet jack. That would be the ABV on the back end. So. I'm going to look and see. This particular one. Oh, okay. Never mind. I see it. I was trying to see if they indicated on this can anywhere where they uh had the hops and they, they definitely do, but um What's your what's your rating, sir? Oh, uh, four three. Four three? Nice. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right, so <clears throat> uh sorry for that awkward pause. I was literally spinning my can around in my hand trying to find <laughs> where on the label uh mine is uh always forward from marlow artisan ales uh it's another one that's um out of north haven it's most of these come out of north haven because they're distributed by uh brewery i mean a, a distribution company down there called 12 percent a lot of you guys have probably heard of them already um but this one is um uh, a, a smash ipa if you're not familiar with it it's a single malt single hot uh sort of line that they do where they change up the hops and the malt every time they uh, release a new variant. Uh, and this one is two row and mosaic, which I'm pretty excited yeah. about. I am a big mosaic fan. Huge uh, mosaic fan. And now that I've spun this thing about a million times in my hand, let's, let's see it blow up my face. All right, we're good. I was really fighting the urge there, Sam, when we were talking about Sammy to be like, hey, you wanna see some shit? And they just throw this one down the hatch. Just throw it back. It's not something to be proud of. Yeah, it's not something to be proud of. I will be the first to say that. Uh, it harkens back to my college days, and I wish I could say that was the last time I did that, but it is not. Uh, this pour is another very you know typical opaque New England IPA. Smells fruity, but a little bitter, actually. I've been needing to get a little more bitter IPAs back in my life. You know, I, I need more IPAs that are like me. Bitter, not fruity. <laughs> or balanced. So shout out to <laughs> Miller for the for this class. Hey, I, you got you to gotta have it. You know, I went to, um, went to a brunch place the other day, this past weekend in, in, in D.C., and uh, they were like, hey, would you like some to drink? I said, yes. Uh, do you have any IPAs on tap? And they said, no. I said, oh, rats. Okay. Well, 
do you have Miller? This is no. I said, okay. All right, whatever. Just, <laughs> what just, have you got? Just bring me. <laughs> bring me whatever you got. Because I was going to make a great mimosa, you know, Miller and, yeah. uh, and orange juice. And they, they didn't even have that. They're like, we could bring you the orange juice. I'm like, well, I hope so. What kind of brunch place doesn't have orange juice? <laughs> what did they have for beers? Did they have any? Uh, they ended up having, like, Stella. And they had, uh, they dug. They found a IPA can. I'd already had it before, but I was just happy to find an IPA. Fair enough. All right. It's good. It's um it's it's another one like the one I had on the last podcast where it starts off a little bitter and then has sort of a sweeter finish. This one's a little bit more mild, a little bit more subdued than I would say the last one is. Like it's not the bitter isn't like a heavy bitter punch the same that the sweetness isn't like a, a, a sugary sweetness it's just sort of like a nice little mellow sort of trail off on the end but it doesn't have the one thing it doesn't have is like an immediate punch of well i don't know it's weird this is one that like each set tastes better than the last set that's why 14 sips, everyone knows the rules. You can't just, yeah, you can't yeah, just necessarily yeah. take one sip, you know, because whatever might be at the top of the beer is not really the way it's <laughs> intended, right? Like they say the perfect way to drink beer is, is like the Guinness method, right? You, you buy three, you, you slam the first one, and while you're drinking the first one, you order your second and third. You drink the second one kind of fast, and by the time you get to the third one, it's the way the beer was intended. But you can't really be doing that with like 8% hazies, you know what I mean? Or 10% barrel-aged stouts. It's just it's not possible. I mean, you, I guess it is possible, but you won't be yourself by the end of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, all right. So, I actually really like this. <clears throat> I've had others from Marlowe. Um, I think I had a pale ale from them before, and one of the variant. But this one's good. It's not. Uh, it's not overbearing in any particular facet, but it is does have a nice little sort of mellow sweetness to it that I you you sort of look for that I tend to find more in like some of my favorite pale ales like uh, uh four point from Trillium is kind of like that where depending on the variant that you get it has just sort of like a mellow profile and like a solid finish and that's what this one does it doesn't really like punch you in the mouth when you first take a sip but as it like lingers and you 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 finish the drink it does have like this nice pleasant sort of like you know, candied sort of, I get like little starbursty almost style flavors on the end without being that sweet, if that makes sense. There's no artificial fruit flavoring or anything like that. They didn't throw a ton of lactose in here to try and make it sweeter than it needs to be. It's just the hops doing their thing and it comes through fine. I'm actually gonna give this one, uh, I'll give this one a four three as well. I, uh, All this right. is gonna be one. This is, Can we title my... the episode that? The one with the four threes? No, yeah. we shouldn't. Because there's there's other there's other important stuff we're gonna talk about, but Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. That one is uh this one is good. I think this is my favorite one from them so far. And I think this might be uh on the top of my list of IPAs from Connecticut. Nothing will unseat Fox Farm yet. Uh we're still working on that, but I would put this sort of in the same vein as Burst from Fox Farm. Burst has that same sort of uh Sort of flow about its its flavor profile where um it starts off mild but has like a candied citrus sort of like orange juice on the way out um 
I'll be interesting to see. And again, this is only for this particular one with the uh, two row and the mosaic hops. I can't vouch for every line that they produce, but for this particular can, I would put it. I would put it up there with um, some of my favorites from from Fox Farm and, and, and New Park as far as here in Connecticut goes. Very pleasantly surprised. So shout out to them. GGs. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Let's talk a little sports here. <clears throat> Sunday night. You and I were probably, well, I, I was at a bachelor party this week. It's so a Sunday night. I was out there celebrating. Uh, congrats to Julian and Lindsay's future impending nuptials and shout out to the crew road uh scooters around dc if you get a chance to ride the scooters i know everyone hates people on scooters but i'm telling you when you ride scooters it's 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 a it's a, it's a blast <laughs> it's one of the many things we did this weekend anyway so on sunday night i was partying you were probably putting brady to brady to sleep maybe reading a book by candlelight or you know dealing with whatever <laughs> weather is coming through connecticut this time of year uh, possibly snow because you know you're not out of winter yet. Uh, actually, you say that now uh, as a joke, but today we had this fluke thunderstorm <laughs> that came through and dumped a bunch of hail on us, and then it, it was immediately followed by a weather alert that said, uh, which none of the weather apps have updated yet, but it said that there was uh, a weather uh, a, a severe weather advisory and risk of 10 degree temperatures tonight. I don't. See I mean, I just. I didn't. Like, I didn't mean to speak that into existence. I just made it a joke because you live in the Northeast. But man, you live in like, like the Doomsday Zone. You know what I'm saying? Like there Dude, might be a lot of opportunity up there, but there's a lot of bad weather. You know what I'm saying? And it doesn't you make any that. sense because within no, the same seven day forecast, there's an 85 degree temperature day. Oh. What the hell is going on right now? Chef's kiss, <laughs> and then chef's kiss from hell. Sunday night, European football. Massive, massive, massive news announcement. 15 clubs from across Serie A, La Liga, Bundesliga, and the Premier League all decided they were going to form a super league of European football teams. Now, if you know anything about football, not American football, soccer, as we refer to it, football, it's a global force. Uh, the, the Champions League is made up out of the best teams from all of those individual leagues I just, I just mentioned. Okay. So there was a plan released. Basically, this is their plan. We're going to have 15 to 20 teams. We're going to pay them a lot of money. And uh, it's just going to be a couple extra games. They're going to play a year against all these other teams. FIFA, which is the governing body of football and UEFA, which is the European governing body of football. Definitely had some thoughts from the minute they came out because essentially these owners came out and they said, we want to form our own league. We don't like the uh, the Champions League the way it is. And, and a lot of people thought it was sort of a power play to kind of get the changes they wanted. But really, it's kind of about money. And that's that's what this was. The winner of the Champions League gets $100 million. The winner could do a lot with $100 million. The participants in the Super League were going to earn $400 million. So four times, mm -hmm. which is insane. And they put out some flimsy statement about how the, the COVID-19 pandemic has hit all football clubs hard across the continent of Europe and really degraded the sport. Hello, isn't it for everyone? But they really kind of like threw it out there. And they're like, you know, we want to have competition, but we also want, want the best players uh, in these leagues to, to face up against the, the best players. And even though it was only, you know, one home game and one away game against all the other teams, it was not 
sanctioned by any coach or any player. Uh, it was something that came down from the top. And, and when the owners, you know, from these 15 clubs came out and said, this is what we're going to do. Uh, coaches and players notably said, nah, this ain't, this ain't it. Um, it's fans. And then even political leaders like prime minister, Boris Johnson and um, Francis Emmanuel Macron, they came out and said like, this is detrimental to the sport. We do not uh, side with this and we will figure out legislatively what we can do to prevent this. That, that should have been the writing on the wall. Like this is not going to work. However, the next 48 hours was a big swirl. There was protests in the streets with people wanting to save football. There was a lot, a lot of public statements from coaches and players that had emergency zoom meetings. And they said, yeah, this, we don't, we need to put a statement out, even though the club, you know, might have their statement. We need to speak out against it. So kind of putting their jobs in the line. There's a very, very big divide. And it was fascinating. Within 48 hours of this Super League being announced, most of the big teams have pulled out. Uh, I, I think it's pretty much on its death knell now. And I mean, I got, I saw this, this joke on, on Seahawks Twitter. So shout out to Seahawks, Nick. Uh, he said the, the super, the European Super League lasted less time than the Russell Wilson trade rumors did. <laughs> So, you know, I, I thought that was funny. We'll bring it back to European football, though. This, <laughs> this is the problem. This is the problem. The Champions League is built up of awesome soccer teams anyways. And the way European football works is if you are the best in your league, you get to go up to the Champions League and you get to play against even better teams than what you would face on a regular uh, format if you weren't going to national like tournaments like the Olympics or the World Cup. And if you're bad, you get relegated. Now, so if you've watched Ted Lasso, like you understand what relegation is, why it's a big threat. Um, but relegation just means, hey, you suck and you're going on to the next level below you. And then you have to play your way back in. It's, it's always like that thing where we say like, all oh, the Browns are so bad that like, I bet Alabama could beat them. Like, but that's what actually happens in European football. They actually say, Tim, your team is so bad that you're going to be knocked down a level. So you get a good product. And that is really the big thing here. When you have these teams, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Man City, Man U, all of the, the big draws, right, from, from England. And then you have AC Milan, Inter Milan, Juventus, and then Atletico Madrid, Barca, and Real Madrid that pretty much come out and they say, thanks for creating the Champions League. We don't like the way it is, so we're going we're gonna to go ahead we're going to make our own league. I mean, the balls. But, <laughs> I, like, but also the pandemic to show how much Yeah, also sh how much money. 400, Euro, 400 million euros to, what was it, 12 total teams? Mm. Like, I, I didn't even look to see where the hell that money was coming from. Is that, like, government-sponsored money? Like, oh. I don't understand. Oh. Two, two things. So this is how the Champions Prize money is calculated. When you go through each stage, of the playoffs in the Champions League, you get a minimum amount, okay? So if you make the group stage, you're guaranteed a minimum payment of 15 million euros. Uh, if you get to the top and you win another uh, round, then you get an additional two and a half million. And uh, if, if you win, you get a two and a half million. If you get a draw, it's just under a million. The team to reach the round of 16, they bank an extra nine and a half million euros. Quarterfinalists get another 10 and a half. Semifinalists get another 12, okay? So... Each Champion League finalist will get 15 million euros, and the winner's bonus is like 4 million because you already made it on the way there. So basically, a team can earn 
anywhere from um, on the minimum side, 76 million euros to as um, some, some sites have reported like CNN and Morning AM, Bayern Munich, who won the Champions League last year, won 130 million for lifting the Champions League trophy. And Liverpool the year before that, 111 million. So we're, we're talking about a serious amount of money. The larger issue with the money, though, Tim, goes to the fact that, like, right now, owners want as much money and power as possible. And when they make that money, the money goes back into funding lower levels of the competition. It's not like that here in America, so we can't really compare it to anything, right, except for maybe baseball. Because in baseball, you have the, the AAA and AA, which you can call them up from. Well, in European football, your money isn't exactly your money. A lot of it goes back to FIFA, and FIFA funds the, the game at and the sport at many different levels. So the owners are kind of saying, we're tired of paying for scrub teams. That, that's kind of what they were saying, right? And you want to know where this money came from? J.P. Chase Morgan, an American bank. That said, listen, we will grant you every one of these teams $400 million as startup incentive because they thought that there was going to be TV deals and a franchise merchandising rights that were going to come with it. And they thought well, we're going to make all this money back. Also, an American football owner, an, Amer like an NFL football owner, Stan Kroenke, owner of the Los Angeles Rams, was also involved in this. So uh, to me, this kind of seems like the most American thing ever. Like, oh, you're going to get some TV deals? Do you know that we do TV deals here in America? And we actually just got 10 years, like 10 billion to, you know, get Amazon Prime to go to all of our games. Like, wouldn't you like that? Yes, we could do that for you. And then Amazon Prime said, no, actually, like we already have a deal in place and we're not going to, we're not going to support the Super League. And then the politicians came out and said, we don't support this either. Then the players said that. And then the fans took to the streets to the point where they had surrounded a, uh, a bus of football players that was coming back from a match. And they had to get extra security to make sure people didn't bum rush the field. Uh, like, wow. A very, yeah. very wild 24 hours. The heart of this is competition. We love to say in America, like, oh, the best, the best team is always going to win. But sometimes it, that isn't. You know, you have blown calls or, you know, weird things happen. In soccer, well, sorry, football, in European football, well, football, it's – if you're the best of, of your league, you get to go to the next level and you get to face off against the LeBrons of the soccer world. And if you're not, then you get relegated and you, yeah, better luck next time. The fact that they took these teams and they said, we're going to put you in your own league. It doesn't matter if you have a shit season. It doesn't matter if you have a great season. You're going to be in that league. You're going to make 400 million euros a year and you're going to be just fine. From a business perspective, it's shrewd to not at least look at that. From the fan perspective, it was absolutely atrocious for the game. And a lot of Americans might not understand that soccer in the rest of the world was really built as a sport for the common people. It's universal. We want to say that, uh, you know, American football or baseball are the biggest sports in the world. Yet the Champions League final gets way more views than the Super Bowl. Way more. It's not even close. So the popularity of a global force versus like a, a, a regular sport, they're, they're not even the same. And for them to come out, those owners, and say, we want the best competition but not having the threat of relegation. Many coaches like Pep Guardiola from Manchester City said, this is not sport. This is not meritocracy. This is not what we have built the, the sport on. This is not why it's a great game. And if you're telling me I have to trot my players out to go face some scrubs who are like, you know, not even top 15 in the world, like, why don't we just make the Champions League better? Now, UEFA, I'm sure FIFA will issue some sanctions, 
Uh, we're getting close to the end of the Champions League final this year anyways. Was it a power grab? Was it a money grab? Who really knows? It's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating because it's very hard for me to not look at this as Americans trying to muddle <laughs> once again in, uh, in, in, in British sports. It's just sort of like we don't need that. J.P. Morgan needs to like focus on things back here at home. We don't need to be giving European football teams 400 million euros for a, a possible super team, which in all sense of the word died within 48 hours after being announced. So it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, man, I, uh, I I can't blame any of the teams who had to, you had to at least entertain the idea, right? It's sort of the equivalency of like NBA taking the top twelve best teams or the most marketable teams and deciding to say, you know what, the hell with this and the competition. Instead of having our guys go out and you know play games that really don't matter, let's just make all of the games matter. But we're going to control it, and it's going to be our own thing. I don't even know what they would call it as. But you then know it would come with like its own streaming costs or its own broadcasting costs and all that sort of stuff. But any team looking at that amount of money and understanding that that money isn't necessarily going to be funneled back to an organization, it's going to be funneled back to ownership pockets. I don't necessarily think this has to do with like the U.S. meddling. I think this is the owners, like what you see in the NFL every day, trying to get together and find, finding ways to make more money. And they just happen to find an American bank and another American business owner who was willing to sort of pay into it because we're also suckers for a dime. Um, but it's, you see it in real time with the NFL, right? Where they're extending the season and they're trying to squeeze more and more money out of it. Um, the only difference is like the, the money from these games goes right back into the owner's pockets. So they're obviously, you know, funneling their own incentives where this looks like just, not just necessarily a, a complete money grab, but a way to take over all of the funds that are being brought in by your team and taking ownership of those funds versus having to funnel out any sort of percentage of it. Um, for me, I think it's just a, a bizarre move in general to be that public about it that quickly before it oh, was yeah. like finalized. The fact that they didn't even try to float it out even to maybe like a small group just to get a feel for what they would think. It just literally came out of nowhere hey, we're going to create this super league. And then you put teams in a position who may be reeling from COVID and may be looking for ways to, to, to make money who saw that 400 million euro carrot on a stick. And we're like, we can't not participate. Like that is, that is franchise changing money, right? That's that if that's what you're getting in your first year. Now, again, I don't know what the, the deals were and how long they had to pay that back. And, what their forecasts were, what they thought they would make, any of that sort of stuff. I know it would have made some form of money. I'm sure it probably would have made a ton of money if it was there. As as much as uh, as much as fans wanted to protest and be angry, if it existed, they would still buy tickets and they would still go to it because they still want to take in the sport. And if you're forced to take it in one way or the other, it's going to happen the same way that everybody who didn't want an 18-week season, they're going to watch that 18th game every season that it comes in in the NFL, right? Like it's, people were still going to consume it. You would only sit it out for so long before you were like, all right, to hell with it. I miss soccer. I'm going to, I miss football. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take it in. I'm going to watch it. What uh, if it changed like the dynamic of the game though? You know, like everything that's, that's, that's so great about the champions league is that you, you can get up and you have the fear of relegation. So like if you segregate the teams from the rest of the pack and you say we're elite and you're not, 
that really that I think that polarizes the game in in a way that can't be undone. You know, I, I, I mean, I agree. It would, it, it would be like. It, it, you're basically looking at a season long or like a new league being generated out of an all-star league or out of an all-star game where you're bringing the best of the entire league. I mean, the, the, the honest like end of that would be that you would probably get some really, really high profile games. You would probably get seasons full of champion league final type scenarios because you are taking the best of the best every single time, but you also have a lot of money to lure in those who may have been sort of, out of it right so say one season went by and it had any sort of relative success every team now has 400 million euros to go out and sign whoever it is that may have been part of another team that wasn't included in this or or someone they thought maybe wasn't uh or, or hadn't made their way on a team that was picked for this elite group and what you an interesting having, take. yeah what you would end up having is like and, and again I, I I think it depends on the product, but like if you were to take, you know, the best uh, the best NBA teams, if you were to take the Lakers, uh, you were to take like the Celtics, you were to take the Bucks, you were to take Magic, you take all those teams and put them in their own league. Those games would ultimately end up being all relatively competitive. Now the standard and the I think the field goal moves the goalpost moves a little bit because now you're measuring like top tier talent against top tier talent. And then an off league there is going to be very different than like an off an, an off season in like the regular champions league. Or if we're, if we're using any other sport as an example, um, you know, if you took a super league of NBA players, a, an off season in that league is going to be very different than like regular NBA off season where our team is like, you know, 300 on the season or something like that. So I think it would have been interesting to play out. I wouldn't support it at all. I, I think it's, it's a, you know, I think it's a terrible benchmark that you would set for sports just worldwide because then the goal wouldn't be to get to a team and then excel your team. It would be to get to this elitist group, which without even naming any of the teams, most of the people who have any sort of rough understanding of, of football would probably pick four or five of the teams that are included Anyways, in that 12 yeah. just because they've heard those names and now those teams are already perennial contenders they already have shitloads of money you're already hearing the big contracts that they throw around so they formed their own little sort of elite group as it is now and that is the champions league because they're included in those every single year but at least there's a chance for other teams to kind of cinderella their way into those versus not having a chance and it's just being those do i think the the product would have suffered not necessarily because it's not like suddenly the talent is going to fall off on those teams. In fact, it's but maybe, going to... I mean, we, we talk about, uh, you know, how players don't want to play all the minutes. Right. So then like, if, if you're adding an extra 20 games a year on top of an already packed schedule in, in a, in a year where you have to qualify for the world cup or the Olympics, are you really going to see Messi? Are you really going to see Ronaldo? Are you really going to see PSG out there every single night on the pitch? Probably not. Well, so, you would probably you would probably see them more in that league, and they'd be sitting out other tournaments for ones that maybe not as high profile is what it would be, which is where and, I think yep. the big problem comes into play because those other games aren't going to matter as much if you're in a league. I mean, if you're if your team's getting four hundred million euros to perform, you're gonna put your guys out there to to perform. You're not gonna stick guys out so they can rest for you know, a Premier League or a Champions League game that really isn't going to matter as much anymore. Those are going to be like developmental games just to kind of 
get a feel for maybe some new players and we'd probably see is them just pull out of some of those and play less games in some of those other leagues they would literally focus on that because you're again you're making four times the amount you would if you won the entire champions league you're getting more than that just to participate i can't even imagine what the payout would have been at the end of that season if there was some form of you know playoff and ultimately a championship that would come from that if you're yeah. 400 million dollars just to part uh, 400 million euros just to participate i'm sure there's probably another 100 and 200 or whatever on the line for whoever wins it was just far too lucrative for anybody to not pay attention to it it was far too much money for anybody to just sort of turn a blind eye and say, okay, let's not hear this out. If you're making $100,000 a year and someone comes up to you and says, hey, look, your company may be great. You might be doing some good stuff. I'll pay you $400,000 to come over here and work for me instead. And then, you know, fill in there when you can. Not a, not a single person would be like, nah, I'm good. But they're contractually <laughs> obligated to be in, in the Champions League as part of FIFA and UEFA's rulings. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. That 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 part of it is is unique, and this is the thing: a lot of Americans do watch football. They they, they spend their Saturday mornings watching Premier League matchups. Okay, I've seen it in many bars here in the area. Okay, uh, they're yeah. rabid fans. They wear their scarves everywhere. I'm an MLS fan. MLS, you know, games are around. The quality is not really the same. The competition is not the same. But I I love watching soccer games. I I do yeah. love watching. Premier League games. I, I, I do. I, I don't really necessarily associate with a certain team or the other, but like I watched the Champions League final a few years in a row. I've watched the World Cup. I love seeing that that level of competition. So for me, it was just sort of like I'm a casual fan and I'm kind of saying, not nah, this ain't it. This, this is this is not good. So yeah. it, it's hard. Like there's so much money because there are some clubs like Barcelona who's rumored to be 700 million euros in debt. So this yeah. would effectively, you know, clear half of your debt, bring you into a higher credit rating, whatever it is, allow you to sign those lucrative players, the contracts, pay transfer fees, which are just unbelievable. They're like, oh, you want Tim? Hmm. Yeah, 200 million euros. And teams are like, okay, who should I write the check to? Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's an insane amount of money that gets passed around. And it's almost like, it's not even monopoly money. It's just like, I don't even know, money from the yeah. future. It's just it's so yeah. high. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. It's just some of those... Some of those uh, recent deals are just completely out of control. And then to know that they retire by coming to play in the MLS is just uh, now the more more, more smoke more, everybody. <laughs> the, the, the more the more and more I dig into it, the more upset I get. I'm like, man, we paid how much for this guy? Like to just yeah. to play 16 or 17 games? Like that's good for him. Like yeah, and then he boots a goal from you know. Half so effectively the half court line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. All right, let's let's give a quick ode to Alex Smith, spread quarterback, human titan. There, I don't think there's any other way you could say this, Tim. If you followed Alex Smith's career and you've been a really big fan, you were you were a 49ers fan probably. You were a college football fan. You were a Utah fan. You were in on the spread offense before it became chic in the NFL. Uh, you can't. You can't look past what Alex Smith and Urban Meyer started at Utah. Had a profound effect on football as a whole, not at the collegiate level, but also the NFL. Uh, it, it got Utah into the Pac-12. They, they had a, a very, very nice run. Uh, Alex Smith finished fourth in Heisman voting one year. He got drafted super high in the same year that Aaron Rodgers went towards the bottom of the end of the first round. Like, 
there has been so much about Alex Smith's career that just seems like it was written out of a out of a movie script, out of like out of out of a story mm-hmm. that you just wouldn't believe. And and if you were to write that story, it would be titled one thing: persistence, because that's it. That guy has been persistent, no matter what team he's been on. He's always been the you know the undisputed leader, whatever quarterback he was mentoring. He's always been persistently in that person's ear, sharing knowledge of the game. Whatever team he's been on, he's always been the person to help change the culture, to bring the attitudes around full swing. And I think, as a, as a non-football fan for many years, I didn't understand Alex Smith's true prowess until that drubbing that Kansas City handed the New England Patriots in the midst of their second dynasty of Super Bowl runs, where like Bill Belichick famously said, like, we're on to Cincinnati. Like, we're not talking about the ass-kicking we got from the Chiefs the other night. And then to see Andy Reid do it again a couple years later with Patrick Mahomes, you're like, okay, so was it the quarterback? But remember, Alex had to make those throws. Alex took a team to the NFC Championship. Alex took a team to the AFC Championship, you know, to the playoffs. Like, he started 15 of 17 games that was in Mahomes' first season. He mentored Colin Kaepernick. He mentored uh, Patrick Mahomes, like, there is nothing that you could ever say about Alex Smith that he doesn't put the game on his back and is where it's hard on his sleeve. He doesn't give it all for his teammates. He's always persistent. And then when he joins the Washington men Redskins, you kind of wonder, all right, are your best days behind you here? Like, this is the third team. Like, what are you going to do here? Uh, and then the injury happens. It's a terrible injury. It's so heinous. You can barely comprehend it. Um, it looks painful. If you watch the Project 11 documentary, which I encourage everyone to do, uh, you see how much strife how much how much drama his life really became uh, in the fact that he almost lost his leg. He entered Septus and he almost lost his life. Uh, it's like everything that was thrown at that dude, he just persisted. And for him to come back and say for even a smidgen of a second, I'm going to continue to play football. He could have retired. Everyone would have said, oh, my God, I cannot believe with your career, what you have done thus far is amazing. And you, you endured a, a horrible injury. Hey, caps off to you. But he decided to come back after 18 plus months of rehab. He, he works his way back onto the, the active roster. He's the second quarterback on the, the depth chart. We know that the, the Washington football team had some drama. He gets activated as a starter. Very first snap against the Los Angeles Rams. He gets sacked into next week by Aaron Donald. Pops back up. Just, I, I, just a mountain of a man. Just so persistent. And... I think that like stories, you know, fail in comparison to his like Rudy, for example, like this guy is just determined to make it like he aggressively rehabs. He, he, he finds a way to get back in the pandemic season of 2020 when his coach Riverboat Ron Rivera is saying, you know, we think the NFC East is wide open. Alex helped author that comeback. They get a division title. They go to the playoffs. They keep up with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now it got crazy there at the end. Right. And he didn't play that game because of an injury. Taylor Heineke did admirable. That team, that team really shocked a lot of people, but he helped put in a lot, a lot of that ground level. And I think that you really have to take a look at, even if he always going to say, this guy is just fantastic, but he won comeback player of the year. And to be honest, I think the award should be named after him. Like there are people who bounce back from a bad season. Well, what's the criteria for that? Oh, well, you know, Tim threw 15 interceptions. And this this year he threw 38 touchdowns and four picks. Okay. 
did Tim break his leg and come back and throw you 38 touchdowns and four picks? No. Like, there, there are some awards that should be reserved for near sports Valhalla. And while I don't think he will necessarily make it into Canton, I mean, he's got 199 passing touchdowns, 35,000 yards uh, total passing. There's postseason magic there. There's a story that people can only dream of writing, let alone living. And, I mean, the game was changed in a very, very good way. And I know the fans of the Washington football team definitely feel the same way. So I would say best of luck in retirement. Thanks to what you did for the game, Mr. Alex Smith. Tim, your thoughts? Um, I, as an individual, I have the utmost respect for Alex Smith for everything he did go through coming back from that injury. That documentary is a very, very moving documentary to see how what was uh, a gruesome injury you thought might sideline him end up becoming not only a sidelining injury but also like a life-threatening limb-threatening type scenario to see what he had to go through what his wife had to go through all of that to come back and then even step foot out on the field and run a risk of you know having to go through all that again um you, you can't say you can't say enough about that because it is just a, a, a truly astonishing thing. Like that was, that was truly horrific what he ended up going through. Uh, now, separating that from Alex Smith, the quarterback, that's a little bit of a different story. I think the without the injury, had he retired, I think he would have gone on like. There would have been some discussion about it, but it would have been sort of a quiet exit only because while, you know, he's proven to be a great mentor, he has been like a truly, I don't want to say mediocre quarterback, but a middle-of-the-pack quarterback, maybe. You could say above average, right? I would say I would even venture so far, and, and again, this is, you know, no no shot to his character. Some of it may have been some of the teams he was on. But like a slightly above average quarterback because, I mean, he has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine seasons, if you include last season, uh, in total, where his QBR for the season was uh, like 55 or below. <laughs> so he didn't have a lot of stellar seasons. Uh, he was serviceable. But again, he definitely put up some, he definitely put up a ton of wins. One of the things that, I mean, he has plenty of seasons where he didn't necessarily even start the entire season. So some of those stats might be a little bit sort of misleading. He has one, two, three, four. He has five seasons pre-injury where he didn't even finish the season in the starting position or wasn't the start of the entire season. Um, one, two, three, four, five, where he didn't even start uh, 10 games in the season. So there were some some injuries that followed him early on. Uh, I think as a competitor, I think as a player, um, you know, he deserves all the credit that he is given. Like you said, he's one that, you know, continues to show up, continues to try and do his job, whether or not he was either capable of doing it or surrounded by a team who allowed him to do that. That's a different conversation, but he did, there, there was no quit, right? He had all the reason to kind of walk away. Um, once he got that, you know, gruesome injury, instead of coming back on a team that was kind of struggling a little bit, uh, instead of coming back and trying to take the mantle over once again, he even talked about, you know, after being released by them, um, 
going around as some teens, but he had already started contemplating like retirement. Jackson. Yeah, yeah. He said he swung by Jacksonville, had a great feeling there, but ultimately has decided that, you know, he had already just, he, I think retirement had already sort of set in for him a little bit and he was just kind of going through the motions. Um, I think he would be a great coach. I think he might be like a phenomenal, I, I mean, put him in as a, as a QB coach. Um, I don't know necessarily how well he would fare as like an offensive coordinator or a head coach. I would need to see what he could do first with like a smaller group of players. Um, unfortunately, with leaderships come uh, with with successful leadership often comes winning, and that's not exactly what his record indicates. So I don't want to call necessarily his his we leadership think so abilities. Too. There, there are so many other quarterbacks in like the two thousand five. The 2010 drafter, like, oh, I don't know, Sam Bradford, you know what I mean? Which, sure. like, could kind of unfairly, like, skew those results. Like, passer rating wasn't really a massive thing. I mean, Peyton Manning didn't have a, a, a terribly great passer rating for, mm -hmm. for a while. And for a spread quarterback to be out there as long as he was, to go through a couple, you know, iterations of his own career, I think this is, a, you know, maybe a, something where stats don't matter. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I agree. The pro I, I would agree more if his uh if his record reflected more than the qbr did like if you looked at his record and saw you know several winning seasons but a low qbr you can say like okay i understand it but if we go i'll just start naming off we'll, we'll run through the entire list just so we can hear so far um starting from 2005 2020 uh he was two and five seven and nine two and five five and five Three and seven, two thousand three. He was thirteen and three, six and two, eleven and four. So you're like, okay, he's made a little bit of a turnaround. Followed up with an eight and seven, eleven five, eleven four, nine and six, six and four. And then in Washington this last season, he had a five and one season. So he did show a little bit of that. And there was definitely some towards the tail end of that where um, he was doing good things but he was on a team in kansas city where you replace him with a guy like mahomes and they're like giving up a game as they get ready for the playoffs so there was a lot of talent on that team that i don't know if it was necessarily taken advantage of he beat the patriots be yeah the but like the dolphins though, you know? beat the yeah the dolphins beat the patriots you know a couple times in some of those seasons so patriots while they're a decent benchmark they are vulnerable to you know teams with great outings but i so, think it was like 42 to 13 or something like that like i remember that ass yeah. And I just remember yeah. from the moment where I think it was like a swing pass that like Alex Smith just threw to like Kareem Hunt back in the day when he used to be a, a chief. And it was like, he just ran down the field and the defense had no answer. And I was like, what are we witnessing here? It, it yeah. was more about like Andy Reid taking the football, you know, to the next level. But yeah. it was, it was still great to see Alex in the driver's seat for and a it, and I mean, he does have a, a 62 career completion percentage. So that's that. I mean, it's still, that's, I mean, a, a pretty decent number. So yeah, I would say he, he belongs like, you know, in the, in maybe the slightly above average category. He put, he, you know, some of those seasons, he put him in positions to, to win. Um, but I mean, I, th I think he'll go down, like you said, as the comeback play of the year, he should be someone that they, consider naming the trophy after it should be someone who becomes the benchmark going forward uh, 
but I do think there's also like a little bit of recency bias when it comes to like the love and appreciation for what he did and how we look back on his uh, career. But I really hope to see him either, you know, hop on the, on the, the, the booth to maybe give us some rundowns or maybe take a stab at, at being like a QB coach. Obviously, you know, Kaepernick had some success. Mahomes has had some success. So he, it does show that some of that mentor ability might be there. How much of, you know, their success after the fact may have been coaching and, and skill players on the team and, you know, just natural ability. Obviously with Mahomes, that's a very, very different animal uh, when you compare him to someone like Kaepernick, obviously. But, you know, mentor two guys, both of which have had some success. So maybe maybe there's something there worth exploring. But I do Could wish be. him all the best. It was fun to watch him. I enjoyed watching him last season. I found myself pulling for him uh, going into the postseason, even though – uh, they made it into the postseason with a losing record. It was still like a, a team when you needed something to root for. I found myself rooting for, for him in, in Washington. If nothing else, I mean, how good of a story would that have been if he had, you know, somehow played himself into the to the Super Bowl or would have been I mean, wild. Had had they won it. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. It'd have been wild. <clears throat> All right, Tim. We're gonna end the episode here. Uh, with a change of pace. And, and I think it's it's only right that we that we discuss this a little bit. We give our take and, and we preface it by saying the fact that we're two white dudes in America, yeah. right? Um, you know, we definitely don't understand the, the, the intricate nuances of police brutality. We don't understand any of those, those mitigating factors that, that go into those, those situations. But this week, there was a ruling um, for former officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. And there was a ruling on it. And I think it was a momentous day and a momentous ruling. And I, and I think, and, and, you know, let me know if you agree with me or not. I, I think justice has been served for George Floyd's family. And although there's many lives that have been lost to police brutality and that, that number has not slowed down, even on the day in which the ruling was given, there was more violence that, that erupted across America. I think that a mixed race jury finding former officer Chauvin guilty on all three counts of second degree murder, third degree murder, second degree manslaughter was stunning. Stunning in the fact that because we know the status quo has always seemed to have been acquittal or worse. Um, I think it's important to note here that George Floyd's death had a profound effect, not on American sports, but on sports as a lexicon as a whole. Uh, it didn't include just NFL players and NBA players, it included Formula One drivers, NASCAR drivers, European football players, I mean, just about any single sport you could think of in the world um, started talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and started talking about systemic racism. Um, uh, sports drew a lot of attention to that. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that while they're not responsible for getting the, the verdict being levied, uh, they are responsible in some way for keeping the conversation focused and driving the car forward. Um, and, and it also brings up a necessary conversation about the uncomfortable role American sports players have in global protest and conversations about systemic uh, issues and, mm -hmm. and I, politics in general, politics in general. Uh, you know, it was a very, very momentous day. I, I think a lot of us waited with bated breath and we thought, all right, three charges, maybe one will stick, but you know, it's sort of that you have three to make one stick and then to see the first one stick, to see the second one stick and to see the third charge stick. You're kind of like, Oh, I, I'm witnessing something here. 
like I, I stopped what I was doing at work and I, and I just turned the TV on because I knew, you know, that it, that it was going to be announced. And, and I just thought to myself, I, I think I'm going to witness something here. I, I didn't think we were going to see what we saw. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought we were potentially going to run the same risk we saw, was it 36 years ago with the Rodney King incident? Uh, I lived in California at the time of that uh, deliberation and during the LA riots afterwards where they found cops who like blatantly, blatantly beat a man on the side of the road, regardless of the, the circumstances that, it, that brought him to that position and then to find them not guilty, you watch Los Angeles and other places burn and you know i couldn't help but think that you know we were preparing ourselves for something similar now you can make all the arguments you want about the the benefits of rioting and, and looting and all that stuff that's not part of the conversation we're having right now you can talk about all that stuff but the fact that you know there are that many people who are outraged and so many of us who kind of saw the writing on the wall and thought for sure yep here it goes again, we're about to see another one and then have it not be the case, I think was even more surprising. And you still have groups out there, you still have plenty of people, you know, all over social media who are coming out in defense of what he was doing. But I think when you watch sort of the testimonies of everybody who was involved, you saw the people who were brought in as, you know, experts on both sides, all generally come to the same conclusion while some of them may have sort of blurred the line a little bit when they got pressed almost everybody kind of came to the same conclusion that one what he did did in fact or more than likely than not did uh, result in the loss of life um, when they brought in experts to help show that what he was doing was 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 necessary in that moment and they initially agreed until they were pressed and were like Maybe not so much also, and this is, might even be more alarming, to say that you know we also recognize the risk of asphyxiation by this particular move, and the fact that that's still being taught might also be a giant red flag. Um, but across the world, like I got a lot of my news updates from you know BBC, and I got a mm -hmm. lot of updates that came from areas overseas just because of the way my schedule works now a lot of times the news cycles i'm seeing in the morning or in the late evenings are the the following day's news cycles from places you know on the other side of the world and they were following this so closely it was as if they were reporting from here within the states um i mean it, it it's Every one of these incidences get looked at and they get dissected and we peel them apart. I mean, we had a conversation before this about one of the recent events just to kind of sort of flesh it out and it wasn't nearly, you know, as, you know, cut and dry as, as what this one was, but there was literally no indication in this one. There was literally nothing, I think, in my opinion, you could look at this and be like, yeah, there was a gray area. This is definitely, you know, there's some wiggle room on either side. No, like what we witnessed and what plenty of people who were at the scene of that event witness was somebody get murdered by another person um whatever brought them to that moment in his mind is you know neither here nor there at this point everybody saw what we saw experts saw what we saw everybody agreed he should be held accountable for the loss of life now we're not here to judge someone's history just because you've had a criminal past doesn't mean you should be sentenced to death anytime someone feels that uh, they should be able to impose their will on you and put you at risk for that. 
Uh, that's one of the common threads you see every time one of these things happens. Well, look at their past. Okay. What does that have to do with this particular instance? If they just complied. Okay. Well, in this particular instance, he was in the back of a cop car prior to all this happening. So, like, how much more compliance do you need be besides being handcuffed in the backseat of a vehicle? Right. And then being dragged onto the street and, you know, an excessive then, amount of footage that was confirmed by both body cam and cell phone footage. And, and that's, that's, that's the scariest yeah. part, right? Like yeah. if we didn't have that cell phone footage, where, like, where would this have ended up? Yeah. It, it would have been more cell phone footage of, and now what you're seeing, you know, with some of these other events is the rush to get the body cam footage out to try and help curb some of the judgment before it gets out of control but that happens so quickly now, it's almost impossible to get ahead of it now. So it always ends up being sort of this, this crazy commotion every time we follow one of these events, which still pains me to say every one of these hurt. events, right? Yeah. The, the fact that we have to say more than one of these. Um, and I think as a white male sitting on this side of the screen, on this side of the microphone, not having to put myself in those positions, I have never been someone who has been pulled over by a police officer and at any point had the thought cross my mind that like, oh, this could go really, really poorly. I'm usually thinking like, oh, I might get a ticket here or something might happen. They may tow my car or, you know, something crazy. Oh, did I forget to renew my license? Those are the kind of things that go through my mind and the fact that those aren't the same things that go through the minds of a lot of my black friends is, you know, disheartening to me to to think of that uh and to know that there's you know not a lot i can do on 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 my end other than show my support be vocal use a platform like this i already know there's going to be some people who are going to be turned off just by this conversation quite frankly i don't really care it's yep. something that me we either. have to talk about it's something that we need to make sure we get out there um, we're completely open to the conversation too if anybody wants to reach out and chat with us about any of our opinions or any of our thoughts we we more than welcome you to do so but prior to passing judgment or talking negatively to anybody why don't you reach out to one of your black friends and ask them about it you know, you may find that they may agree with you. May they, they may disagree with you. But the, the moral of the story is yesterday, what we saw is one of the first times we had clear, present information and evidence that showed without a doubt something went awry either in the policy, in the process, the individual who had a history of showing these signs of force on the job, uh, who was then held accountable for taking things too far, acting outside of the scope of his policy. Um, wh whatever the excuse you want to make, it does not matter. What he did led to someone dying, and he has to be held accountable. You'll ask, well, why are there multiple counts? Well, a lot of things go into that. Not only did he cause the, the end of life for an individual, he did so in front of minors. Uh, he did so um, while on duty in the form of protecting other people. There are lots of factors that went into this, but I mean, the, the defense across the board generally was relatively weak. They had a specialist come on and say, maybe he died from a mix of drugs and carbon monoxide from the police vehicle. Like, okay, well, why are you being held on the ground long enough to have to consume carbon monoxide from uh, a police vehicle also, right? How many times do you have to say to someone who's there to protect you and protect the people around you that you can't breathe before they stop and pay attention? When you stop moving, 
how long before they are also supposed to, because again, the stress is the police are there to protect you and protect the people around you. At what point are they supposed to start administering chest compressions? When you had the one witness who was on the stand who, when pressed, said, no, anybody off the street could start, start chest compressions. It doesn't have to be a medical professional. It could have been anybody. It could have been someone on the sidewalk. Literally anybody can do chest compressions. And the fact that nobody was allowed to and nobody did kind of goes to show either the lack of empathy, awareness, or whatever. It just shows an overall misunderstanding of what your purpose was at that particular moment, which is just as dangerous as anything else we want to talk about. So, yeah, I think I think it was a good turning point yesterday. I, like most Americans, was expecting, you know, some form of not guilty or something to come down the pipeline where we were going to see America kind of reel from it again. And then it just restarts the conversation with looting, rioting and its benefits. And, you know, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. Um, you know, I feel for George Floyd's family. If, in fact, uh, the officer didn't intend to do what he did, you know, still there's a family member who's now lost to the to the jailing system. I I believe he got what he deserved. I believe justice was served. It, it, you know, you, you can't help but feel for everybody involved in the situation. One life is gone forever. Another life has been completely ruined. And then all the guilt from all the witnesses who have surrounded it. That's the part um, that like hit me the most. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, the guy, the guy who even called the police in the first place, you know, yep. said like, I, if I had not made that call, he'd still be alive. Or the people on the side yeah. of the road being like, I'm trying to actively walk them through how to resuscitate him. And they're saying like, you know, leave. We don't, we don't need your help. You know, just, yep. just absolutely brutal. The people who felt like they should have physically got involved in it to, to help avoid it. Like all, all of those scenarios. And then, you know, the weight that had to be on the jurors to do the right thing, you know, hoping the whole time you do the right thing. Cause I'm sure there are people in that room who may not necessarily agreed. It was two days worth of deliberation for what most of us looked and saw as like, yeah, Cut and yeah, this seems, this, this seems pretty obvious. So, uh, tough situation all around. I'm glad it ended the way that it did. I hope that this sort of, you know, sparks a little bit of thought. I, I I don't necessarily know in the grand scheme of things how much this is going to help change, though you hope it does a lot, because like we just said, uh, you know, shortly after that, there was another incident. That one's got, that one's a little bit more sticky. There's a lot more that's going on in there, and that one's really early in the process, so we won't even bring that one into the conversation at this moment, but we know it'll. it's only a matter of days before another one comes up, where we're then having to dissect the minute details of what's what. But we countlessly see other countries who manage to deal with, uh, you know, the threat of violence and, and, you know, people who are in situations to hurt other people who are able to de-escalate or defuse the situation without having to take the life of that person. It's weird to see that here in the United States, we don't see that as often. Every day, it's, it's no longer... For me, the, the story and the dynamic changed a little bit when some of the conversation, you know, I fully agree with like mass murderers and, and guys who go on shooting sprees getting like peacefully taken away. Um, even after shootouts with the police, you see, you see some instances where they're literally like carried away. You had the marathon uh, bomber who him and his brother 
through bombs and shot at police vehicles but by the time they found him they you know he had been shot they just kind of removed him from the back of a boat and carried him off where you have got you know you know the kid last week who had a gun threw it away and had his hands up in the air and still got shot right like there are situations yeah, that that just don't seem to me to add up but for me when when things really changed was when the defense of you know your friends and family became oh cops kill just as many xyz people as they do black people or they shoot more white people i'm like well how is that your argument like how yeah. is how is your argument well they kill just as many or more of another particular race and not oh shit maybe there is a bigger problem here mm -hmm. than just one particular race so maybe if that's your argument Maybe don't look at it as, okay, they're killing black people all the time, and look at it as cops are just killing people all the time, right? Like, if that's really your argument, and yeah. that's how you want to look at it. Could be an uncomfortable conversation, and, for sure. Yeah, why not look at it and say, okay, the use of lethal force, I think, is being implemented too often. What are those solutions? Like, what are other ways around that? I, we have the tools. We have tasers. We have uh, pellet guns that shoot, you know, rubber bullets. You have... I've I've seen the paintball guns that uh that shoot the uh the um pepper spray filled balls. Like there are other less than lethal alternatives to it. So if your argument is one race is getting shot and killed just as much as every other race, maybe that conversation needs to become why is the use of force in lethal manners used as often as is. so there's plenty of ways to approach this conversation if you're not comfortable saying uh it's just one particular race but i think you're still hiding behind the fact that more and more of these incidences where you see people who are being shot for being unarmed and in scenarios where despite what led them to that point are being unjustifiably killed in the street you're running from the police? Okay, we used to watch cops all the time. How many of those episodes ended with someone getting shot? Almost never. Why all of a sudden are we willing to accept someone getting killed because they ran from the police if they just complied? Yeah. It, 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 things so are going to happen. People are going to do things. I know most, I, not most of you guys, I know many of you guys I've seen who are piping off on social media and some of the derogatory terms you guys used to use when referencing members of force and to see the sudden shift in how um, some of that same mindset is now like the police can do no wrong. It's, it's sort of jarring for me to sort of understand where that switch or where that change happened. Um, I would love to have some of those conversations with some of you guys. I'm not going to call anybody out. I'm not going to name any names, but I, I've seen it through college, through high school, afterwards. There were plenty of times where somebody complained about getting a speeding ticket and they used derogatory terms towards police officers, or everybody's heard somebody talk about entrapment where they got a ticket and a cop was sitting on the side of the road. Well, if you were just complying with the speed limit, you would have gotten a speeding ticket. But yeah, that's, it's that's. That's that's the same argument, but back then when it applied to you, it didn't matter. But now that someone's losing their life, and when the threat of losing just, your life, yeah, yeah, they should have just complied. You, you you can't have it both ways. There's got to be a change that happens. It's it's a shift in mindset, in my opinion, in the way these situations are addressed. To be a hundred percent fair, and to be a hundred percent honest. I can't even imagine what it's like to be a police officer on any given day, let alone the stress of being a police officer in the last few years, 
going into these situations knowing that the entire world is watching what you're doing and if you do something out of pocket or if you do something that has a negative result it's going to be dissected not just at the local level but on national television and you're going or to have to answer all stage. those right and yeah rightfully so you're in a position where that should be the case but you're also in a position and i i would it would be unfair to acknowledge the fact that you're in a position where a lot of times you're making split second decisions a lot of the decisions we're seeing made aren't necessarily split second decision makings and some of the lives of the officers aren't necessarily at risk in these scenarios so that's a tough argument as well but to say that we understand the stress that you're going through would be uh entirely unjust to the people who are in the line of duty so right and then also I, I, like you said it would be difficult to opine on like what police officers go through but also to opine on you know like what what black people in america feel right. when they get pulled over 100%. when they have interactions with police officers so and or even yeah. especially a third category which i don't think we we've even talked about here is just that you know you have police officers of color anyways you know what i mean like yeah. that's 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 something that's it's wild i remember being at the uh at the the marches of the summer in DC and uh and just seeing the the wide array of of, of police officers and they weren't yeah. all white men and just just you know just seeing all the vitriol that was thrown at them and understanding that you know, you can't just take a look at a lens and just say oh this is exactly what it is uh in this case i think we did because we we definitely have video evidence and and that, and that was that uh, it, it's just going to be an uncomfortable conversation but it's one that I think we've put off for too long. We've dealt with race in America and we've always put a patchwork on it. And sports stars have kind of looked outside with apprehension and just sort of said like, really? And then people are like, well, use your platform, say something. And then, you know, I mean, sports stars in America have always been like demigods anyways, you know, like you own a certain day of the week. So we're going to look to you to promote your causes, but don't say the the wrong thing. Cause then your ad dollars are going to go away. Right. And athletes took to the streets with, with protesters, athletes put their message forward. That, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, accountability, all of those things. Um, and a lot of that got muddled by the media. A lot of it got like thrown to the wayside. But athletes needed to speak their piece. And th this time there was significant video footage that displayed the horror as there's been, you know, footage before. But it's a tough pill for sports fans to swallow because the LeBrons, the Bradys, the Trouts, the Wilsons, the Daltons, the, the Dak Prescotts of the world, all of those, those people at that level have have a platform and they know they're going to speak about it. They know that there's things that, um, that sit, doesn't sit well with them and they have to have those uncomfortable conversations. Um, they have to, to move beyond that. It, and race and sports is always going to be a tricky situation. You know, it's not really a highway. It's more like a roundabout. There's just so many things that could go wrong when you get in the roundabout, if you take the wrong exit, but like think back to NBA players protesting. Think back to Muhammad Ali. Think back to the race rides. Think back to what Colin Kaepernick started in the England for in 2016. This is not something new. This is not something that just popped up overnight. This is something that's been systemic. It's been going on for a long time. And the impassioned pleas of black men and women in America were not listened to until recently. And I think a lot of us thought, oh, we listened to them, but, you know, is this going to be enough? Like we talked about with, with the charges being levied. I mean, the NFL put out a statement saying that they hope that George Floyd's family, you know, you know, is dealing with this. And, and if there's any grief and sorrow, like that, they wish that, you know, that they don't have to go through that. But like the NFL also blackballed Colin Kaepernick, the NFL also didn't put out a statement about black lives matter until their marquee players did. So there's so much of that stuff that again, you talk about when these scenarios happen that people 
rush to either judgment or rush to put a statement out. And it's sort of slapstick. And, and I think it takes away from kind of the dividends that the players are putting forward anyways, which is their own social capital to try and make these things um, kind of come to, come to fruition. I mean, again, sports was not on the jury. Sports didn't take the video. Sports are not out there patrolling the streets. Sports players, though, as members of the community, and whether you want to say that they're separate because they make millions of dollars for playing a kid's game. And, like, think about that. That phrase, you get paid millions of dollars to play a kid's game and shut up and dribble, are like stepbrothers. They both show up at, the, like, the worst times. You're not really, like, cool with them. You know, yeah. I'm just kidding. Stepbrothers are cool. Not, not in this scenario. But <laughs> this represented a seismic change in the world, and sports had a hand in that. It would be wrong yeah. for us not to talk about how the intersection, you know, came to be because I think that like what we saw in the middle of a global pandemic, uh, just, I don't, I don't think we, we would have known necessarily what to do with it, even though we've had the playbook for years. Yeah. And I think one of the things that often gets lost when you see athletes is you associate athletes with millionaires, but we then forget is what the athletes background and what their, you know, earlier growing up years were. Well, yeah, what they, they could have often, been or things they've been yeah. experiencing. And how often they relate to, you know, some of what's going on. Like, not everybody who's in a professional position in sports has a, a squeaky clean record. Not everybody has a family who has been completely void of any one of those situations or family members outside of their direct family. Friends, like a lot of those guys came from areas where they did struggle with a lot of those same sort of things that were going on on day to day that, you know, folks like myself or Sam couldn't possibly relate to. Like, I have a little bit of an insight just because where I grew up, you know, in Los Angeles, I got to see some of that. Um, my family didn't have a, a ton of money. So just the sort of people that you end up, you know, interacting with on a daily basis, just because of your circumstances, lets you see inside of some of those things. And once you get to a point, that doesn't mean you forget about all those things. In fact, it tends to kind of, you know, for a lot of these players, it tends to be more impactful because you said, okay, well, none of my family will ever have to experience that anymore. And, and I'm looking for life-changing money, not for myself, but for my like kids, kids, kids. Right. Yeah. So a lot of socioeconomic issues. Yeah. And so to, to look at an athlete and say, Hey, you're not allowed to have a voice. That's just, it's, they're at the end of the day, they are people as well. And they are separate of their brand. Um, I mean, it's, it's a good thing you brought that up though, because like in America, we fall in love with sports, the people that play them because we dedicate entire days of the week to them. But like, we don't love them as individuals. Oh, yeah. you want more money. You went to a different team. Ah, I hate you. I want to burn your Jersey. Like, we devalue their yeah. stances and their calls for change when it doesn't align with what we want. And we, we give all this hoopla to cancel culture, but like sports unites us in a way that politics could only dream of. Yeah. And well, it's super idea. unfortunate that we had to, we had to get to this point where sports had to light the, light the match, you know, metaphorically and, and yeah. be the catalyst for this change. Yeah. It's like stick to sports and stick to business. But don't do it in a way that I disagree with there either, because then I'm also going to be pissed off. And like you said, I'm going to burn your jersey. Or I'm going to, I'm going to try and you know write you off from from fandom. But then also don't speak your mind about uh, political events. You just keep your head down, play for the teams I want you to play for, and I'll be totally fine. Anything outside of that is unacceptable, and I don't appreciate it. And it's just a, 
it, it, it's, it's a shitty bad take mm -hmm. and i think there's a lot of those social media kind of enables a lot of those takes to get out there very quickly and to make the rounds very quickly so i expect to see an unfortunate amount of those over the next week as people come to grips with you know what they witnessed and you know the aftermath that is is going to come from that but uh, we said, said it a couple times before america is in a very very sticky place you hope that this is a step forward um yeah yet I mean, to be determined on either side if that's the case if this helps you know someone who may have been on the fence as to whether or not they feel that a crime's being committed against you know any black citizen maybe this kind of opens their eyes a little bit to be like oh shit okay well it's not just the people online it's not just the black lives matter movement that sees this this is a jury this was you know professionals they brought in this was his own team this was That's, his own his own thank uh, you superiors saying, you know yeah when when, when is, everyone in that chain of command said this was not in line with our values this is not what we teach this is not what we accept um I, yeah. I i i mean some you know you can look at it from a pessimistic standpoint and say oh they're just throwing the trash out you know they're just like oh well, yeah. we're not going to be associated with that guy but like uh no <laughs> you know like uh, of course you, you do have the warning that you know with sentencing a few weeks away that maybe one of the the charges doesn't stick um but i think it would be again unfair for us and wrong quite frankly for us not to recognize the day for what it was you know and and as a catalyst, you know, you and I are not going to stop talking about things of this nature. We, we didn't stop talking about it, you know, in June of last year uh, at the height of some of these movements. And we're not going to stop talking about it now. I don't think we'll stop talking about it in the future. Um, these are conversations that all Americans need to have, should have, should have had. But uh, we, we've gotten to this point where you said that, you know, America is in a sticky place. And, you know, we got a lot of work to do to, to clean it up. And we have to do it together. And I hope that this you know, this day that comes with, you know, such immense grief also comes with, you know, history. And we learn something from it finally, because it's, it's exhausting. And it's yeah. exhausting for someone to be on the outside of it and watch it. I can only imagine, you know, what black people in America are feeling. Yeah. If you, uh, if you haven't yet, look up Emmanuel Ocho's uncomfortable conversations with a black man. He has mm -hmm. folks from all walks of life come on and they talk about, their experiences, their actions, the way they look at things, including uh, police officers uh, yeah. who he had on. And they do. They have uncomfortable conversations about, you know, different outlooks on um, everything from politics to general life to black-on-black -black crime to like, a lot of those conversations, a lot of those things he brings up, a lot of the talking points you see social media kind of regurgitate he brings on people from both sides to have that conversation that is meant to be uncomfortable. I mean, he's he's done very well with it. Oprah had him on. He actually has a book out that that yeah, talks and his about book it a is bit. fantastic. You know, yeah. it's a it's a quick. I mean, I say quick. It's about a five hour listen on Audible. Um, but I mean, it, the, the content is there. You definitely need. Everyone should should either watch the YouTube videos because they're out there, or or read the book for sure. Yep. And if you if you you know. If you know anybody uh, in your circle or, or just outside your circle, you have any black friends or black acquaintances, reach out, have a conversation about yesterday's hearing and, you know, maybe they'll help shed some light on uh, some of what your thoughts or your concerns are, or 
you know, maybe they'll help reinforce some of the beliefs you had going into this. So it's it's one of those conversations where this should be something both sides can agree on, both sides can kind of come to an understanding on, and this is not political. Like, there's nothing left or right about this that should be removed from the thought process. This is about, about humanity. Yeah. yeah, this is about humanity. This is about, you know, brotherhood. It's about being part of the same place it's about you know how everyone should be treated it's that if you you know a, a, a cop shows up you know to you in distress you should be treated no better or worse than you know someone of another race who's going through some of the same stuff if you're you know being detained and having difficulties you should be treated no better or worse than another race so um this is a perfect segue to open up you know, you have one side that's kind of celebrating, another side that might have some questions. Join those two sides, and you'll find some common ground, and maybe that's the, the, the area we need to get in to kind of move forward and maybe take a look at all these interactions going forward. I would agree. Yeah. And that does it for this episode of the Staff Summer Podcast. We thank you very much for your continued support. Please like, share, download, subscribe. Get into Twitter battles with us. Hit the DMs up if you want to be a podcast guest. Don't be sending us any of those weird messages. <laughs> and uh, if you're a brewery, you know, take us some beers. We wouldn't hate it. But thank you very much for joining us with this very, very momentous episode of Sassman Podcast. We'll talk to you soon. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Cheers.